Welcome to the I Love Music Podcast. My name is Jen Fedor. I started the I Love Music Podcast to inspire people who love music, encourage people who work within the industry, and to hear each person's unique story. Guys, it's 2018. To kick off the new year, I got to see Jeff Goldblum perform his jazz show at the Rockwell a couple weeks back, and it was such a fun time. If you are ever in the LA area and haven't seen his show, go. It's so worth it. All right, for this episode, I got to interview Pete Anderson. Pete is an agent at the Agency for the Performing Arts and books different artists, unique music festivals, and events. I really believe he is helping build culture in each respective genre of music he is working with. So many people love Desert Days, Burger Records events, Dance Yourself Clean dance parties, and it's really cool to hear the inner workings of what goes on behind the scenes and his journey. All right, let's get into his interview. So what music influenced you growing up? Well, um, the very first concert I went to was Beach Boys and Paul Simon, and I think it was like 1988, so I would have been like seven years old. And that was in Boise, Idaho. It was a great experience. My dad snuck me down to the floor, and um, both my parents had great music taste. My dad was a huge fan of like the Pet Shop Boys and Talking Heads and stuff like that. And... um, Bananarama and just all kinds of cool stuff. And I'm an MTV generation, so I like the music videos and that kind of thing. Did you know from growing up that you wanted to work in the music industry or? No, not at what, all. Yeah, what was, what was your path? Well, um, when I was a kid, I got really obsessed with Jimi Hendrix, by the way. Okay. Uh, I forgot to mention that. Um, and I've just always been a music fan. I played in a band in high school and um, went to a ton of shows. Boise's kind of unique in the country because it's the only routed stop between Salt Lake and the Northwest Corridor. So okay. saw a ton of routed shows growing up, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, playing uh, Neurolux, that kind of thing. And I just was a fan. And then I went to college, I went to Vanderbilt University, and there I studied psychology and anthropology. Okay. And I, did a lot of like neuroscience work as well uh, just to sort of test that science aspect of myself and just found out that I really wasn't I don't know competitive or that intrinsically interested in it and so I didn't know what I was going to do when I graduated and I just took a job uh, working in technology at Dell Computer and that was good money but it was sort of um, I don't know vacuous because there was 80,000 employees at the time. There was, I worked in a sea of cubicles. There's 5,000 people in my office. <laughs> it's just insane. That's a lot. It's insane, yeah. And um, I remember this one specific instance of a densification project, which is when they took all the cubes and they reduced them down by six inches on all sides, so you're like even closer to your coworkers. And I just didn't think that that's what I wanted to do for my entire career. And I was it's such a sterile environment. Oh yeah, and just in terms of like the amount of time you spend working, if you're going to be good at it and excel at it, and it's like, you know, you might as well do something that you enjoy. And I was discussing that with my friend Barrett Sellers, who's an agent at Lay Morris. He works in the national office there. Okay. And he was like, "Well, you should, you know, think about coming over and being an agent." So um, I quit that job, took a job in the mailroom, and took a massive. Yeah, uh, pay de- pay decrease to do it, which was basically my my idea of like funding my, you know, 
uh, f you know, my journey into the music industry. Yeah. And started in the mailroom and, you know, just delivering mail, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and what were some of, like, what were, what were some of the things you learned during that time of working in the mailroom and kind of like working your way up? Well, it's not that I was cocky, but I think that when I was younger, I might have had an unrealistic attitude about my worth <laughs> in general. Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm a smart guy and like I work hard, but in terms of like, you know, what the company owes to you or that kind of thing. And I think um, going from like a kind of a mid-level job actually to uh, working in the mailroom was a very humbling experience in a lot of ways um, because you know you're cleaning conference room tables and you're vacuuming and you're right. you know filling water and coffee and you're just you know you're, you're around you're trying to do anything you can do to yeah, get to the and, next step and that system is super maintained and it's one that people handle very strictly and the reason is because you're teaching people to have a work ethic you're giving them grit, um, you're teaching them humility, and you're teaching them a universal truth of the music industry, which is that you're always somebody else's assistant. You know, I assist my assistant, my assistant assists me, uh, but I'm, at the end of the day, assisting artists. Yeah. Assisting managers, CEOs doing the same thing, you know? And unless you get that sort of mentality, I don't think um, you'll succeed in the music industry because it's such a perilous journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really have to have a strong work ethic if you really want to. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And, and you have to roll with the punches to a certain extent. And you got to, you know, get over your own fragility and, and get through it. So how did you work your way up? What, what were the next steps after the mailroom or wh where, what? Yeah, so uh, I was in the mailroom for three months, and then I got promoted to Barrett Sellers' desk, my friend. So I, I was working for him as his assistant. And at the time, he was booking the entire uh, East Coast of the United States. Wow. Crazy. Maine to Florida. That's huge. Clubs and colleges for the country music roster, which I, th I think it was like 80 artists at the time. William Morris has always been like m just a massive presence in Nashville. And... It was before it merged with Endeavor, and so um, you know it was it was smaller then than it is now, but it was still a pretty big office, and uh, it was a ton of work. And so I just supported him, learned the ropes, like learned about issuing contracts, getting them buyer signed, getting them fully executed, getting deposits in, uh, getting ticket counts, uh, maintaining the quality of the show, you know, attention to detail, like mm -hmm. learning paperwork. Um, and a work ethic as well, because you have to get through like just tour after tour, and it's relentless. And uh, eventually, Barrett had me start booking like small club artists, and so I did that. And then that coast was broken apart into given to two junior agents that were then promoted, and Barrett moved to the West Coast. Okay. And then we started this whole process of, again of learning the territories, which basically entails me going with an Excel grid and researching every market. Yeah. And in some of these markets, it's pretty complex, like Los Angeles, which you've got Orange County, you've got Riverside, you've got Los Angeles, Long Beach. I mean, how many markets are there in Los Angeles alone? 
in the so surrounding many. areas. So many. I mean, it's so and and you got to understand those markets in order to adequately book your artists. And so, yeah. while it seemed at the time like a massive data entry thing, it was also fascinating. And you're learning about all the venues and the clubs, etc. And um, I started booking club gigs out there and um, became an agent trainee, which is uh, an honor there. It basically means that you're next in line to become agent. And you're in a class. There's like eight of us. Okay. And we got to sit in on the meetings and we got to do like uh, interesting things like go to the ACM honors. Okay. And serve as like the production team behind that. So you're kind of learning behind the scenes. You're learning equipment, et cetera. For people that don't know what the ACM honors it, what, what is what is that? That's the Academy of Country Music, okay. and um, <clears throat> they do an honors show once a year. Cool. And uh, when I left William Morris, and mm -hmm. at the time, and actually a few years afterwards, because I ended up organizing this for APA at one point, um, but they're still doing that with their agent trainees, okay. is that they provide the production services for that, and they kind of get to learn yeah. that hands-on approach. But anyway, um, and... Then I started working for Greg Oswald, and Greg's head, still head of the WME Nashville office. And uh, you know, at the time he was handling Taylor Swift and Kenny Rogers and Big and Rich. He's got still has a lot of these artists, Gretchen Wilson. Uh, you know, just a massive country roster. And he's you know looking after that office, and he's administrating all these agents. I mean, it's a big job. And um, so. One of my first tasks was servicing the Fearless Tour, which was a big, big tour and a lot of work. And so I was doing like guest listing and like gifting, <laughs> just yeah. all kinds of things that you don't even think about that go into the job. And, you know, feeling like a small cog in this machine. Right. And, you know, I had kind of a crescendo moment where I thought, you know, what I really wanted to do was be in rock and roll. and. The artists that I was actively looking for and uh, trying to sign without, you know, the ability to. Right. Basically, like begging these agents to sign, and I'm I have never been a, really like a country guy, so to speak, you know, and so I struggled in that office. I struggled with finding artists that were relevant for that roster, mm -hmm. and I struggled with. Um, really being a massive fan of the headliners that worked in that format. Since then, I've become a, a, a bigger fan of the format, actually, as yeah. my musical you know, interests have gotten larger. Um, but uh, at the time, I don't think it was. So what my best friend is a guy called Heath Bomar. He lives in Nashville. He works at APA. Okay. And he's the guy that recruited me over to the APA office. And at the time, they had a small contemporary music roster. Um, and, you know, it was in this little home and it was more collegial and it felt less sterile. And, um, you know, I'd went from Dell Computer to William Morris, which was a massive change in corporate environments, like wearing like business casual to wearing jeans. And then yeah. like going to William Morris to APA, I mean, was even more of like a collegial, like in the trenches sort of vibe. And I really liked that. So I went to APA and, um, we were booking this roster and that ended up becoming sort of a lost enterprise there. They more converted the Nashville office to a country office. Okay. Um, they let go of some agents, made some restructurings and they let Heath stay in Nashville and they gave me an option and they said, do you want to move to Los Angeles? 
and I, because we're not going to be doing contemporary music out here. Based on the artists that you're signing, you really need to be in LA or New York. Um, and I was like, sure, let's do it, and moved to Los Angeles. Um, I'd lived in Nashville for 13 years, so I didn't know what I was doing really. And uh, but I landed here, and I was immediately booking uh, the contemporary music roster for APA, which has about 400 artists signed to it. Okay. And we break that up in territories and account sets, um, you know, based on you know if you're a casino or an institutional buyer, you know, like a festival buyer, or if you're a club buyer, a college buyer, uh, what part of the territory are you focused on? Is it private, corporate? There's all these variables yeah. that go into all these bookings and you can specialize in all these different areas. And so the territory that I was given initially was Tola, which is Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, up through the Midwest, and then Canada, coast to coast. Oh, wow. Because I was the new guy on the, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and it was, it was you know, comically large. <laughs> and so trying to learn all this territory and book all these artists right. and doing the best I can. and. You know, but it's club and college business, so it's like, you know, a lot of low-dose stuff and like really tight deals. Um, I did that for like two weeks, and then they moved me actually again, but this time to the West Coast territory, and I was booking Washington. No, I was booking Alaska, through Washington, <laughs> Oregon, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. At one point, it was wow. the biggest territory I'd ever booked in my life. Yeah. And um, as we started promoting younger agents, the territory dwindled and dwindled. And then um, I ended up booking California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and Hawaii. Okay. And um, doing that really competently. And then most recently, APA sort of made a change in the way that we're doing things. And so no, we're no longer a territorial model. Okay. Um, and so, so, yeah, exactly. And that's like the new news, because um, for the first time, um, really in my career, I haven't been working in a territorial system. And that, so that's been a very unusual change. Oh my, yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. And that's recent, so. So what does that look like now for you? Um, so now, so what, what happened between when I was started at APA and, and today mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, Steve Martin, Andy Summers, Bruce Soler, um, Guy Richard, uh, you know, Keith Nesbitt, John Panel, like APA has r recruited a lot of very strong, responsible agents from a lot of different agencies and a lot of different backgrounds. And some of them, you know, started their own agency and then ended up at uh, agency group, you know, like Bruce Soler and Andy Summers. And then other guys like, you know, came up as talent buyers like John Panel, who was booking House of Blues, you know. Yeah. So we have all these like different disciplines and Unlike William Morris, where everybody was sort of raised in that territorial model, and everybody, I mean the people that are upcoming, that are actually doing the booking work. Um, but like, these guys have a very hands-on approach. Like, you're the agent for this artist, you represent that artist for whatever territory you decide, whether it's North America or worldwide. Um, but you book all those dates, you oversee all those dates. It's micromanaged. Okay. And um, in certain ways, the territorial model is hindered by the fact that you know, you got a young guy and he's booking 400 artists and you want your artists to be prioritized. Right. And that's difficult to do. So there's this sort of like disparity in, uh, you know, philosophy about booking about 
which model is stronger. Is it a responsible agent or is it a booking agent? And the truth is that both of them have their own strengths and that a hybrid approach is probably the best way to go. And um, to do that, you have to combine territorial expertise and account expertise with uh, a more hands-on approach as a responsible agent. So that's what we're doing. Um, we're, we've built pods of, of you know, contemporary agents, and yeah. they work together collectively to book their artists to the best of their ability. So now I'm working with a select few agents. Um, I'm booking my uh, list as competently as I can, and I do that worldwide in some occasions. Who are some of the artists that you you represent or th that you that you're working with? I have a very eclectic roster. Number one, and that's a product of a couple different things. Um, but like you know, like William Morris and CA. I mean, when you're like market leaders, you know. Labels have like certain things that they need just need to cross off or managers when they're developing new artists and a lot of those meetings are William Morris CAA paradigm and then you know after three agency meetings a lot of people think that they've they can make a decision one way or the other yeah you know what I mean yeah <laughs> it's a service rendered yeah um, and APA you know we have to fight for those meetings a little bit differently than like a William Morris or CAA because mm -hmm. it's just where we were at. And um, that's actually fine by me because I don't really listen to a whole lot of like pop radio. Yeah. That's not really where I'm at. Yeah. I'm also not an active rock listener. Okay. And I actually like country music. I like country music better today than I have in a long time. Like guys like Chris Stapleton, I think, are really phenomenal. And their impact on country music is really great. Um, so I, I do listen to some country radio, but not really. The, the, the genres of music that I'm interested in are psychedelic rock music, uh, rock music in general, okay. um, indie electro pop, house, um, trip hop, you know, and that's about it. I mean, like different, like, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't even know. Like, um, I'm open to basically anything, but it's, <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. Yeah. And if it, if it fits a specific niche that doesn't exist anywhere else. And um, those genres of music don't tend to be radio friendly. So what I've been doing is I've been building branded tours and events that support the genres that I'm booking. Um, so the first one that I signed was Lights and Music Collective. Lights and Music Collective I found because they had weekly parties in Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles um, that were always packed out. Like, you know, these parties last five years, five hours long, and people yeah. come and go, and it's just outrageous. It's a whole scene. And within the midst of these parties, they were featuring rising indie electropop artists that would sing vocal to track. They wouldn't get marqueed on the parties or anything, but they would play, and they would play to a, you know, packed Huge. audience. Yeah. And you know, at that moment, that crescendo moment in the party, they would get the full like projection, and they'd be featured. And that was minting fans of these of these artists. So I signed them because I had been putting artists on these parties, and then I eventually came up with the concept of touring that apparatus and having that sort of cohesive marketing approach and that taste throughout the entire thing. And so that was the first one we did. We did Dance Yourself Clean Tour. We had Powers 
um, body language on that and uh, collage. And it did okay, it was like mixed results, but yeah. um, I started booking that nationally and we ended up getting it nationally franchised. That party exists all across the country. It's every, it's, it's, it's every, yeah, yeah it's, it's a, everywhere. It's a monthly residency in New York at Baby's yeah. All Right. It's a weekly residency at Chop Suey in Seattle. It's mm -hmm. a weekly residency at the Holocene in Portland. It's a weekly residency at the Satellite. It does, you know, shows in Philadelphia, Boston, D.C., Chicago, Austin, D Dallas. I yeah. mean, it's Denver. And, you know, we it's a it's a really cool concept for developing artists that might not be getting the traction on their content like they need to, but still need to play, still need to get their chops and still need to develop a fan base. So we've been doing that for a long time. I now book five parties with them. Uh, the second one I signed was uh, Phil Peroni, actually. And Phil owns an agency called Space Agency that is in no way part of APA. So it's kind of unusual yeah. that me as an agent represents Phil, who is also an agent. Um, but I signed his band, Juju. He also is the owner of Desert Days Festival, which is a oh, yeah. Yeah. major psychedelic rock festival in mm -hmm. Joshua Tree. And um, that relationship has been phenomenal. I'm booking Juju, and we have tours for them, like they're supporting Earthless next year. But we also toured the Desert Days Caravan, which, you know, last year or this year, uh, you know, it was Temples, Night Beats, Froth, Deep Valley, Juju. Um, we did 17 markets. Um, six of those were pop-ups and festivals where we had the entire stage. And we're just touring these psychedelic rock artists. And what's unusual about that, t that touring model is that the opener, Juju, owns the actual tour and curates it. and yeah. and. Uh, exerts creative control over everything. Tour posters and projectionists and backdrops and art installations. Um, so we're doing that. We're working on Desert Days Caravan 2 right now. Um, and then after that I signed Burger Records and Burger Records is based out of Fullerton, California. Mm -hmm. And they uh, do events all around the world. So, you know, at the top of the year we closed BurgerCon for them which was an arrangement where Comic-Con, Long Beach Comic-Con, gave us a budget to essentially curate the music portion of Comic-Con. Um, we're doing Burger Gogo, -Go, which is an all-female fronted garage and psych rock package touring 10 markets. Each market is two nights of shows. Okay. Uh, so it's 20 shows total. Cool. And we have two touring bands of uh, four. Um, so we have eight female-fronted garage and psych rock bands and these like mini festivals all across the West Coast. And then we're doing Burger Invasion, uh, produced by Primavera Sound. That's in Barcelona, Madrid. We do Burger Boogaloo. This past year, Iggy Pop headlined. Um, and then, you know, we're uh, making Burgerama re-emerge its head in 2019. And last time Burgerama played, it was Weezer and Ty Seagal yeah. and Black Angels. It was yeah. a great lineup. Yeah. So. Very excited about that property. It's got a lot of moving parts and it's exhausting, but I love it. And I love the guys that I'm working with on that. Um, I'm also doing the, this kind of similar concept with some of the other artists that I signed. So I signed She Wants Revenge. Yeah. And She Wants Revenge is a Los Angeles band. You know, last time they headlined properly in Los Angeles, they sold out two nights at the Fonda, a routed observatory in Santa Ana, and then did an additional 1,400 tickets in Riverside. So collectively worth 4,500 tickets in Orange County, you know, like the Los Angeles area. Yeah. But elsewhere in the United States, you know, not as big. Um, you know, doing like 1,000 in New York, I mean, pretty good numbers, but they've always been a Los Angeles band. And 
in between the time when they broke as a band and today, uh, Adam Braven, who even before She Wants Revenge came up as a DJ, has launched all these nights in Los Angeles. And so he has Cloak and Dagger, which is every Tuesday. It's a pop-up club at 1660, or 1666 McCadden. Okay, And it's yeah. all dark ambient artists, so dark hip-hop, dark rock, dark industrial, um, you know, dark wave, obviously, dark house music, mm -hmm. anything that you can find that has that dark feel. It's members only and all black dress code. And it is amazing, total rock star experience, lots of fun. We build that into a festival concept that happened this year, October 20 and 21, um, by basically taking that community and giving them a, a festival concept. And we booked the Jesus and Mary chain and Cam FDM and She Wants Revenge played it, of course. Yeah. Um, but we also had horror and Calm Truce and Pop Tone. It was just an unbelievable lineup. Um, and all, you know, an all black dress code was encouraged, not enforced, yeah. uh, but a yeah. lot of people did yeah. it. A lot of people showed up in all black and it was in downtown Los Angeles. It was all the theaters. Ramin Delajani uh, helped us secure the tower theater and we had the globe theater and it was just this incredible night. Um, also as part of that, we brought in Annie Lesser. Okay. Uh, who basically built inside this fe music festival an entire immersive theatrical experience. That's amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, I wish and, I would have gone. The immersions <laughs> have always been a part of Cloak and Dagger the night, yeah. but like building it to that level and as a festival concept was mm -hmm. really something special. And I mean, it was to the extent of, you know, uh, there's phones like hidden all around this festival and if you answer one it tells you that you should be looking for this girl with the green scarf you find the girl with the green scarf she's dancing in the tower you know to That's, the Jesus and Mary chain you're yeah. like, what is going on what is happening what right is now? happening right now it's bananas <laughs> yeah. and it's so artistic and it's yeah. so beautiful um, and I'm working on other concepts with them now we're doing cloak and dagger next year yeah in November um, we're also launching another one called Giorgio's, which is like a modern discotheque. And so what base, the basics of it are that I book a lot of branded property. I also do the Crystal Method, and I do yeah. the Sheepdogs, and I do the Dig, and I do Gold. I, do, I book a lot of bands, too. Um, and, you know, part of their strategy is based on what I'm doing here. Because I have touring vehicles to put right. artists on no matter what. Yeah. Um, I, I am booking branded events that are critical to the success of these genres and for bands getting paid. And really, like, the way that I frame my own position is that I create employment for artists no matter what. I can pitch to a tour and sometimes I get them, you know? Yeah. Like, we have Gold going out with OMD next year, and that's a great pairing. That's going to be a fun tour. Um, but if we don't get a tour, yeah. what happens then? And right. can they tour the United States and sell 500 cap rooms? You know, right. it's tough for bands right now. It's hard. Where does like the, ins where does your inspiration come to put these branded packages together? Is it from what you see that's happening out like culturally? Really, or really what like it comes down to is that um, it's it's a decision that APA made. APA put me in this position because I come from a very strong territorial background. I told yeah. you about the kind of research yeah. I put into my markets and understanding everything. And what you notice about country music when you're when you're learning in that genre is that it's its own like, 
uh, self-fulfilling vertical. I mean, it's the it's one of the few genres where people are still buying CDs and yeah. you know they're still listening to country yeah. radio. Like country radio is so powerful, and it's it's a very traditional approach that the best fans that you can have. They're yeah. lifelong fans. It's family friendly music, so it's all ages. I mean, it's just wonderful. Like, but when you work in other genres like rock and roll or like industrial or anything mm -hmm. like that, you start to realize that even within something as concrete as rock, there's like a hundred subgenres. Right. Desert rock, psych rock, indie right. rock, punk rock, like what is going on? And, you know, depending on what kind of artist, like a punk rock band yeah. might not play the same venue as a psych rock band. That yeah. that is real. Yeah. yeah. You know, no, like it, definitely it's... an emo band's not playing the same as like a hard rock band, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe sometimes. It, it you know, it's per market. Yeah. But the thing is that when you start to realize how, you know, um, complex the genres are, then you're like, okay, well, I got to understand how to book these as a vertical. And that's where the branded properties come in. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really great dance that you're doing to like bring. It's a lot of work. It's and <laughs> yeah. nobody even knows. It's so much work yeah. and like it's so stressful. Yeah. And I'm like, man, just let me book your fans on this amazing thing I'm putting together. Yeah, yeah. But well, it's tough sometimes. Yeah, right? what keeps agents you going? Agents are agents. Yeah, what keeps you going, you know, during those rough and challenging times of? Ah, oh, man, you know, like these last few months have been really tough. I think for most for definitely all the agencies, like the heads of the agencies, you know, there's all the sexual abuse and, and, and harassment and like, you know, that is horrible yeah. and it yeah. needs to get out, but it is everywhere, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Every and it's affecting our clients and yeah. it's affecting our managers and like, and then, you know, Trump's president at the same time. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Jesus, like, know. you know, there's just so much going on. and. And in the midst of that, we got to do our jobs. And like sometimes it can just feel really depleting. And, um, you know, people don't tend to say thank you yeah. as much as they should. They tend to point out when you're fucking up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rightly so. But sometimes the thank yous are, you know, appreciated. And, uh, you know, and I've been facing one of those times recently. And so what I did is I, you know, I always start drinking less and I start working out more and getting up earlier and I start cooking more. And I think it's really easy to sort of get spun out in the music industry where you're going out all the time, you're eating out all the time, you know, like yeah. I'm a single music agent and I've been covering the city of Los Angeles for the last five years <laughs> as a profession. <laughs> yeah. I go to a lot of shows and yeah. I, you know, eat out a lot and sometimes that can get, you know, yeah. Mess up my workout routines oh, or like totally like crap and just feeling horrible. And so, yeah, it's for me, like when I'm dealing with the tough times, what I do is I sort of buckle down and I, I kind of freeze all that stuff a little bit. And I focus on getting back in shape and eating healthy and, you know, smoking less. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard one, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So for like the baby bands, the bands that are just starting out and they and they want to get an agent, um, do you have any tips or uh, 
Um, um, I'll tell you what I wouldn't do. Okay. Um, which a lot of young bands and also a lot of people that are younger in the industry, myself included, like before I realized yeah. like how it actually works, you know, people are trying to figure it out as they go. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the things that people should avoid doing is the scorched earth approach is what I call it, which is basically you take your unfinished product or whatever it is and you blast everybody with it. Um, I think really key to success in the music business is having people become your evangelists, that they're actually going to go to bat for you and try to push whatever it is you're trying to create or do into the stratosphere, right? Yeah. You need people to really believe in you and want that to happen. And if you, if you, if you broadcast to all these people about that, what ends up happening is people talk. It's a small industry. Mm -hmm. And so people become less excited about helping you out. Because it's not, I mean, everyone's got an ego, you know? Right. If you work in the music industry, chances are you think your taste is pretty good. <laughs> that is Just true. Just saying. That like, is every, so true. I, I haven't met too many people <laughs> in the music industry that are like, oh, you know what? I got shitty taste. <laughs> yeah. I never hear a, that in the music industry. No, no. And whether they're right yeah. or wrong, they might have good taste, they might have shitty taste. Yeah. But at any rate, you have to respect that. Yeah. And so, um, there's a little bit of an ego attached to that. And I think if you, if you blast everybody, I mean, you know, there are sharp distinctions between my taste and that of Dave Shapiro. Yeah. There are. Yeah. Dave yeah. Shapiro, he has a market cornered. The guy's a monster. Yeah. Um, but I don't listen to anything that he raps. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for maybe Hanson. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. maybe. I don't know. I, I'll go to a Hanson <laughs> show. But, but <laughs> mostly like his his roster. Like yeah. I don't even know any of those bands. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, what, yeah. The, what is this? Yeah. And they do great. And he does festivals. And he's like doing some gnarly stuff. Um, but approaching, if a band, you know, approaches both of us, that's a lack of recognition of what either of us are doing. Right. Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, bands so, need to do their so research you, it's, or yeah. it's not even about like doing their research. It's more about like, I would focus on individual steps and that's yeah. it, when I'm facing a complex problem. That's what I do is I break it down to like, what's next? What's next? What follows that? What follows that? And that has to be the approach of these bands. They can't, you know, not have an understanding of, of how the industry actually works. So the mechanics of, of putting together a show and they're going to have to book their own for a while. It's just, it just has to be that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, if you sign with an agent too early, chances are that agent's not going to deliver as much as you might imagine. And whether they're good or bad, sometimes those agents will get fired once things start getting picked up because there was all this lull period. Right. You know? Yeah. So agents are sensitive to that and they try not to sign artists too early. I've been guilty of that. A lot of our agents have. Yeah. And so for me, if I, you know, if I were back in the band, in my high school band and I was like, all right, let's break. I would book our own shows and I would select our own openers and I would immerse myself in whatever genre of music it was that I was targeting, you know, I'd go to the festivals that were relevant to it. I would meet the, the promoters. I would play for the promoters. I would play with the other bands that the promoters are booking. Right. And I would support the scene the best that I could. And what ends up happening is that sort of organically, while you're doing that, you meet all the right people. 
<laughs> that's, and then, yeah, and the, then, yeah, and yeah. then, you know, right? right? Yeah. So instead of like getting pad and paper and going online, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the the soul of music is music. So like, stick to that, and you'll find your path. For people that don't know, um, between agents and promoters, what does that what does that relationship look like? Well, consider this. Yeah. I just told you what I do. Yeah. And, and it's on the sharp edge between promoter and agent. And at the same time, right. yeah. promoters and agents are very similar positions. It's, yeah. No, they're it very, is they're, true. I mean, they are the yin to the yang, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're producers and they're creatives and they, you know, love music. Um, but they are business people. They are trying to make money, and they are responsible to parties for making money. And it's a risky business. Um, and on the same side, as an agent, like you know, you're trying to break these bands, but you're also trying to do sustainable business for your agency. You got to make money, and your success is predicated on your relationships with your promoters. You have to treat your promoters with a lot of respect and dignity, and they got to do the same back. You live off of each other. You rely on one another. And I think that um, with my position and what I've been doing, I appreciate that more and more every day. Like as I'm starting to learn all, like I haven't been talking to these agents as much as, yeah. much as I have been now. Yeah. You know, when I'm booking my own bands and right. I'm talking to all these agents all the time, I'm starting to get a feel for like, their different personalities and their different takes on like mm-hmm. things. And that's fascinating. It's so fascinating. <laughs> it's, it's huge, yeah. Because everyone's got a big personality and it's so amazing, so, yeah. For bands that like wanna go on their first club tour, um, what what are some things that you think like need to be lined up? Yeah, yeah, so I mean, I, first of all, I, do, I, I don't think headlining across the country when you're a baby band is a great idea. Yeah. Ever. Like, I really try to avoid that if at all possible. I've been forced into doing that by labels before, and it's I'm like, what are we doing? Right, yeah. Uh, because it, it makes sense the way that bands break. You gotta play in front of fans first. And so I would focus on that aspect as a band, number one. Number two, as far as what you need around you, like, I think that you need a competent tour manager. Um, you need, you know, a van. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a way yeah. of carrying your back yeah. line because yeah. no one's going to provide it. No. Um, you need to, uh, you know, have somebody marketing your music. Like, some entity has to be doing that. And there's a billion different ways to do that today. And not all of them are great, some of them are great. You know, right. whether it's yeah. you signed to a label, like, holy shit, <laughs> I have a record deal. That's great, yeah. you know, because then somebody's presumably doing that for you. But if not, then you've got to be doing it yourself. And I, I encourage all the artists to do that. I think they should have their direct relationships with Spotify. I think they should have, if they're having a distributor, they should be talking yeah. to their distributor and to their marketing entity, like a planetary group, for example, because those are the people that are talking to the individual record stores across the country. Yes, yeah. And so as an artist, I would maintain that connection throughout, but it'll make sense what to hire and what not to hire. You just don't do anything artificial. Like don't buy Facebook likes and don't buy like, 
Twitter followers yeah, or whatever the ins- hell that yeah, is. Yeah, or Instagram like, followers. You know, or, yeah. I'm 36 years old. I don't spend any time on Twitter at all. I mean, Donald Trump does, but like I, I didn't get, I didn't grow up with all that stuff. Yeah. I didn't have, a, I, I didn't either. I didn't but have a I cell phone until I was a junior in college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's intriguing. It is. No, it, it definitely is. Um, so I asked this to all my guests, why do you love music? Uh, well, I guess it's because it's an escape. You know, yeah, it's like the the ultimate uh, environment enhancement. Seriously, yeah, no, I mean, you it add totally music is. to anything, and suddenly it's like you're jamming. <laughs> it's true. Like I cannot run without listening to music. If I if yeah. I can hear my own breath, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's musical. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't tried it. Maybe I will try yeah. it. I mean, I started to appreciate silence a lot more. But honestly, like you know, I can't imagine my life without music. I listen to it all the time. It's totally part of who I am. And <clears throat> I think it's, you know, just incredible art. I, pr- I, la- I prefer music over all art forms. Yeah. I will say that. Yeah. Um, but I also love movies and I also love television. And I like, yeah. I love yeah. amazing paintings and create sculpture. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much sculpture, but yeah. I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway. Um, any... Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Um, any other tips for artists and people or people wanting to get to where you're at? Like if there's anyone interested that that's listening and, hey, I want to be an agent one day. Yeah, just walk before you run. Mind your P's and Q's. That's it. Cool. Well, thanks again. No yeah, problem. for being on the show. No, it was fun. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for Pete for being on the podcast and the bang ups for the theme music. Be sure to follow and like I Love Music Podcast on all the social media platforms and please help spread the word. Until next time, this has been the I Love Music Podcast with Jen Fedor.